0: i'm adam mcgee
1: and i'm andrew schneider
0: and you're listening to captured and celluloid a podcast about movies before we get to the the subject matter of this particular episode some housekeeping remember last time you listened you might have tuned in expecting a an episode about you know spider-man and marvel movies and we we're like no no that's uh just been held up. We've got a we've got a great guest lined up. We're gonna we're gonna have that pod next week. And then that week went past, and then you went into another week. And if you were maybe on the off chance, one of the tiny number of people who could have been like, Huh, where'd that episode go? I actually want to listen to that. The answer is we recorded a fantastic uh, two and a half hour episode with our friend David Dun21, former guest on the pod. And it didn't quite record as we would have liked. We were missing part of uh, one of our tracks. And yeah, the episode is lost to the eater. And it's unfortunate because it took us a long time to get to talk Marvel. And I actually think we had a good conversation. Maybe we'll line it up again. You know, maybe it becomes a a Doctor Strange pod. (laughs) I I don't know, Andrew. We'll see how that one goes if we muster up the the enthusiasm but yeah unfortunately um and it really is not something we're happy about because we lost a good episode but yeah that has fallen true for now maybe we'll, we'll get to it in some other episode another time and we'll we'll get our, our friend ben on again and we'll go through that but we have moved on for now and if we have uh, tricked any of you into tuning in in case there's spider-man talk in very fitting captioned satellite fashion, we are going in an entirely different direction. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about the films and the two most recent releases from a man who has just been nominated for Best Director at the Academy Award, uh, was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay too, and one of the two films we're going to talk about has been nominated for Best Picture. We are talking about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, Drive My Car, and the films of Rishuke Hamaguchi. Andrew, first of all, I had to get the housekeeping out of the way, so important. How are you?
1: I'm well, sad that we lost uh, such a big chunk of our lives to uh, a podcast that we will never hear the light of day, part of the chunks of my life that was... Uh, Lost to the ether was spent catching up on years and years of Marvel content, yeah. and I, you know, I won't get into this, but for everyone uh, listening that may have been expecting that episode, the uh, my takeaway was, yeah, they're fine, but yeah, um, it was it
0: was kind of a sugar shatterers, yeah, so this is fine. Um, um,
1: but we're more into back into a lane that I like when you steer <laughs> us into, which is andrew catching up on international cinema that potentially opens up a whole new world for me to explore unrelated to the pod um now that has varying degrees of success as i have uh kind of a workload to catch up on movies before an award show or something like that but it's always nice but it's always nice to provide me an entry point to something that i can go back to at some point and that's the films of Hamaguchi and Japanese cinema in general, which are two things I had no familiarity with going into this.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my question was, at what point did Hamaguchi come on your radar? Was it when someone like me starts to talk about drive my car a few months back? Is that maybe the first experience or had you ever heard of anything prior to that?
1: I had not. I think... It's possible if you had seen Happy Hour before that you might have mentioned it to me, or I, it's possible that that had come up in conversation afterwards. I
0: definitely would have told you about watching Happy Hour. I, I, I watched Happy Hour for the first time last summer. And there's a good chance, given the, given the way we communicate, you'd be like, hey, you watched any movies today? And I don't think that I would have just like not mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm watching this five and a half hour Japanese movie. Um, so so that might have been.
1: Yeah, it's possible that that happened. I'd forgotten about him. And then Drive My Car has obviously um, kind of the narrative around it, has taken on a life of its own, peaking with these Academy Award nominations. Uh, but obviously my first introduction would have been, Adam says, Andrew, I've seen this movie and this is one we're going to be talking about in the context of the best of the year. and And that's kind of my first introduction. And then, I mean, even after hearing about um, drive my car i had no idea that he had also released uh wheel of fortune and fantasy earlier in the year and so you know this was all a whole new experience to me just uh brought about by just kind of the path that drive my car taken on the road of life. on the
0: road on the road to the academy awards um which is a very cool thing i guess we'll get into that it's it's great that a movie like that can make it to the oscars now um One of the things I was thinking about is I remember us doing a similar episode, more in depth, the entire filmography, really, on Bong when Parasite won, and or may even have been the week before. I I think we possibly planned to record the night after the Oscars, and then Parasite won, and it broke very nicely for us. But this is a very different exercise than uh, a oh here's Bong Joon-ho and here's his new film that you may now have heard about and might want to seek out because although I think there will be people who will seek out Hamaguchi's work uh, there was not the level of kind of hmm, what way do I put this like any international cinema when it breaks out into the English speaking world like there is an element of it's an art house breakout but someone like Bong was particularly kind of of note because, like, if something like The Host plays a part in your Art House breakout, that's not so Art House. That's like a big genre piece. And lots of people came to The Host as kind of a cult movie over the years. By the time he does Parasite, he's had like multiple English language films. He's a Snowpiercer, absolutely star studded Harvey Weinstein kind of uh, fallouts and all involved in that one. He has Okja on Netflix. Like Bong was much, much more established as I think uh, anyone just kind of with a more than passing level interest in movies and who makes movies probably had a good sense of who he was before Parasite and then came to know him a lot better, have a much greater appreciation. I think that would certainly um, stand true to my own relationship to his movies too, as, as well as yours. For Hamaguchi, it's a little bit different. And honestly, it still kind of is. And this is a slightly unusual exercise because I'd often tried to push this out and be like, oh, you know, let's watch watch all those his other films and we kind of talk through that. That's still a pretty tough task. Um one of the primary delights for me in the fact that drive my car was a best picture nominee, and and Hamaguchi was nominated twice, um in his own right for the film, too, is I feel like some people might get their act together and get some like restorations or home video releases going, some kind of some box sets on his work. That's gonna become a, a more lucrative avenue for distributors to to kind of look at in the weeks and months ahead, which is good news because a lot of his work is just not available. Like I've tried, um <laughs> not in any kind of immediate way, certainly not streaming on any even more niche service the likes of Movie or Criterion Channel. And then even some of the stuff that is, I mean, there's a level of... There's a level of uh, some of his work being a little bit daunting. I mentioned Happy Hour earlier, which is the guts of five and a half hours long. Uh, it's also one of the most incredible films I've ever seen. And as someone who can be skeptical of that kind of length of movie, it was something that I had the opportunity to see back in the summer. Sometime it was playing as part of a, an Asian film festival here. And I was like, this is a film I know of and I've heard of for many years. It's got kind of a legendary status because of its runtime as much as anything else. It's supposed to be really good. Maybe this is the time. And I watched it and I was blown away. And I think anyone who was now sampled driving my car or with a fortune of fantasy, and has a sense of kind of how Hamaguchi's films work and the world he builds and the way his characters occupy it. Like a five and a half hour Hamaguchi film is exactly what you think it is. And maybe a little bit more, but so even something like happy hour, which has been available on and off, it appears on criterion channel from time to time. I believe it is there now along with uh, Asaka one and two. Like It's not the kind of thing that everyone is going to be dipping into, you know, unless you're a really hardcore movie fan and you've heard a lot about Hamaguchi or you're just really curious about Japanese cinema. It's not something that everyone will be going to. Similarly, uh, as 2013 film Intimacies, that's over four hours long. And then you can go to the other extreme and a film, for example, that I was able to see only a couple of months ago, Touching the Skin of Eariness, also released 2013. That's 54 minutes. And there is this kind of mix throughout his work where he has a couple of things that come in under an hour. He obviously has already short films which are all in that kind of shape. But then he, there's documentary work, there's fiction. He's got this really interesting, varied, diverse filmography, which is always just like, I guess, what is this project? What does it need to be? And if it needs to be five hours, it'll be five hours. If it needs to be 58 minutes, it'll be 58 minutes. And there's something fascinating about a filmmaker one who is working with that freedom and doing so successfully and building a real reputation while also not necessarily being someone that it was easy to get your hands on, watch all of his movies. And it's still the case right now, still the case right now you can, you can go and watch Osaka one and two and happy hour pretty easy. You could certainly the other film that he was involved in that was released in most of the world this year and um, was Kiyoshi Kurosawa's wife of the spy, which he wrote the screenplay for a very very good film as most people familiar with kiyoshi kurosawa's work would uh know and expect but a lot of his earlier work is still kind of tricky to trace and that just makes it all the more fascinating that one we've arrived at this point with these movies and i guess drive my car even more specifically and that like he's nominated for best director like it's a it's a real sea change in the way movies work as a kind of, you know, big industry conversation, which in the weeks ahead, I guess we'll be talking quite a bit more about the Oscars and for the, the short kind of take on it now, which feeds into this conversation, I would say my overall impression is, you know, a lot of the bad stuff you'd kind of expect, but also some really refreshing stuff and surprises that come true with, Drive my car being kind of right at the front of it, which would have been unimaginable quite some time ago. And I know, as someone who was a teenager and you start to get into movies, and I thought, oh, well, the Oscars must be where the best movies are. How innocent I was, Andrew. Um, that matters, though, because you will have people who will just think similarly and they're on a kind of a gateway into getting into movies, and now they're going to go and check out Hanaguchi movies. So that is something that's very, very cool. Um, for you andrew because i think this is this could be instructive we often feel like it is um, because i i force you into these corners where you've never been before where you've never watched this stuff and then we we get to kind of play off each other on the different kinds of experience with it but i i checked in with you just before we started to to kind of work on this and i was like what what's your knowledge of japanese cinema like what have you seen and this as, as far as we can tell or think off the top of stuff head, this seems to be kind of it it's, it's these two movies this is kind of your introduction
1: yeah this this is my introduction which um i think i think is a good thing and a bad thing depending on how you look at it when you're exploring a new I think, area I think it's a good of thing. film uh a i don't have any stylistic expectations about what I'm about mm-hmm. to see and I think seeing these films for the first time I'm just taking them for what they are so like I I think that 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 was a benefit going into it um I, d- I didn't want to call it like baggage of previous things watched but I think that is something that happens to us as film viewers whether it be via a specific genre of film or an actor's previous work and for drive my car and wheel of fortune and fantasy i had none of that so it's just what is this filmmaker trying to show me and tell me with these particular stories and these particular characters and i think for these movies specifically just i don't know for the the kind of things that they touch on and the depths that they go to i think it really worked in their favor with me
0: i think one of the the really interesting things with hamaguchi And uh, to me, this is what I would say, like, would it be good if you'd seen some other Japanese film before this? Possibly, yeah, but it it can work as a good starting point, too, because Hamaguchi's films are very much like you you can feel the style of other Japanese masters right there. I think Ozu is one that's maybe the most obvious comparison that is there in some places not quite as much as my favorite contemporary um, Japanese filmmaker, which is Hirokazu Korada. And Kōrida very much draws from Ozu, and his films are very much built in that same mold. And with Hamaguchi, you can feel that, you can see that. There are compositions, there are moments that are certainly kind of imbued with that same sense of Japanese life. But there is also something else and I think it comes across in these two films in particular where there's something that at times can be just a little bit more subversive in Hamaguchi's films than you would find in the kind of classical Japanese films. One of the things with Japanese cinema and I guess Asian cinema is it can be a cinema of extremes. It's incredibly kind of broad and varied. You're talking about one of the most prolific kind of uh, film producing nations on the planet and uh, one of the most significant, like we're talking, I don't know, the US, uh, France, UK, Russia, Japan, I guess India to bring in Bollywood. Like that's, if you want to really narrow down cinema from its beginnings to now and the kind of industrial sense of it and everything, like you could kind of hone in like that. And Japan is going to be right there at the forefront of it. But I I do think in terms of what has become, I guess, widely accepted as like the classical view of Japanese cinema and particularly of just kind of Japanese drama, Japanese character studies, kind of family movies, something where I guess will differ from a lot of Kurosawa's work and means close to Ozu. That is there in Hamaguchi, but he's bringing something more to it. And obviously he's been doing a lot of press recently and more so than ever before he's doing interviews with major kind of English language publications. And it has been interesting to see him kind of talk about what else and where he really sees And for him. It's Cassavetes is who he sees as the biggest influence on his filmmaking and the person who just like really opened his eyes to movies. And I I do think that makes a lot of sense when you're watching his films, because you can see it particularly in the relationships between his characters and Adamic's a play, how he loves actors, how his, his films, the camera in his films, love, loves actors. He often deals with very simple scenarios and you can see how it plays out. And he's got his own unique style to the writing process and um, then to his own directing and the rehearsal process, too, some of which is kind of closely mirrored in Drive My Car. There's a lot there where you can see the ideas that someone like Cassavetes employs in his film. And you can see it kind of filtered through this lens that I think certainly for a, a Western audience, you're like, oh yeah, that's Japanese cinema, that's Ozu. Which I say that knowing there's something kind of lazy and shorthand about it, but there is also kind of a, a kernel of truth to it too. It's, it's maybe not quite as pronounced as it is in a Korodan movie, but it is there it is there at the heart of hamaguchi cinema but it's also it's mixing with something else it's mixing with other kind of key asian filmmakers but it's also cassavetti i think he also talks with tarantino quite a lot too which i i can't say i entirely see all of the tarantino in his movies but he is definitely a filmmaker where there's this combination of the classical and there's something entirely new and fresh and striking and with e- even within the course of his movies, and I'm going to be curious to hear your thoughts just on how you felt watching through these and the kind of flow and what the viewing experience was too, because I do think the pacing is a little different to certainly most American cinema, but also I think even a lot of other international cinema, there is, there is much more of a slow cinema tinge to some of Hamaguchi's work, not necessarily all of it, but some of it like you can still you can feel that mix of influences going through and you can feel him finding his own voice in between it and i i just think he has this knack for he may be kind of lulling you along bringing you into a situation that feels very real that can feel very kind of mundane and then he allows something to hit you and he allows something to really kind of drop that feels authentic it feels like a bombshell that could drop on anyone's life even if it it can be so kind of magnified that it's to a scale of something melodramatic. He manages to capture that in a way that feels real and often sets his movies in motion or like really propels the greatest moments in the films themselves. So for you, what, before we get into specifics of the movies, what was your experience or what were you thinking as you're watching through these movies? Like I gave you very strict instructions um, for a drive my car you were to be zeroed in, you know, you're going to be locked in. There was going to be no distractions, no thinking about anything else, no checking phones, all this kind of thing. And I you know, I can't 100% verify, but it seems like you did that. My reason for that was, I know it's a film that, for example, this part of the world has kind of, it has played theatrically very sparsely, like maybe two showings here, then it's gone for a month, two shows in this place, gone for a month, back for a week, back for 10 days, gone. And now it's going to come back again because it's nominated. But I was really lucky to have seen this back in like October, November in a cinema, and it just blew me away. And I had that feeling of, wow, if you go on this journey with them, you get something really, really special out of it the other side.
1: Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe both of these films as a journey in a car. Again, I'll make that reference. But um, yeah, I think while watching both of these and Drive My Car in particular, you just feel like you're watching something that's incredibly deliberate and crafted by a master filmmaker who's working at the height of his powers. And you made a note to say that you can tell that he really loves actors um, with the way way he you know uses the camera and I would say you can also get a sense that he really loves actors by what he does with the dialogue. I mean there are some incredible one-on-one scenes a- in each of these films that just let actors do what he uh, describes uh, to a character and drive my car when talking about uh, Chekhov is just let yourself become overtaken by the text and the situation and the character give yourself over to it and then like let the magic happen and I think that's the sense that you get when watching these films especially drive drive my car which I think is better two films we'll get into that um and I think what's interesting is for a three hour film it, it doesn't it doesn't really feel that way I think it's something that moves it's a film that's all about Uh, I think momentum and to a degree stopping and starting and what you want out of life and how you adjust to challenges and the the feeling in the film is that smooth journey through the story of the several characters that's almost like Misaki's driving like you barely feel like you're, you're grounded in anything and you're just kind of floating on air through the story and absorbing everything that comes along and then by the time you've reached the end um, it's like you you know how you got got here, but you felt like the journey should have taken longer just based on your expectations going in. Um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy felt longer because it's, you know, breaking up three self-contained stories into their own thing. Um, and I think to to tell those stories in the short amount of time, but make them feel fully formed ties back to that just deliberate nature of his filmmaking and how, the camera and the dialogue makes every scene feel incredibly important as it simmers to its conclusion.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that is most interesting about being able to like do an episode like this where we're like, we're bringing these two incredible films together from a director who's released about in the one year. They are so different in a lot of ways, just in terms of structurally. Uh, formally and it's something i really kind of respond to with hamaguchi is as much as certainly there are there are things that you can come to expect from his movies he also just he finds new things and new tricks with every single one and he's a director that i feel has real real flair like he almost has like a showman's flair but he has maybe the best restraint of any director working and that he just, he will hold it all back. And when when he chooses to bring in some kind of really stylistic flourish, it lands unbelievably hard because for the rest of the movie, you may be kind of dealing with, you know, incredibly still cameras and long takes and it is so deliberate and it is, it is allowing you to kind of sit in the scene and really just immerse yourself in it. forget that you're watching a movie and then he has these moments one in particular i know i really responded to in first watch of uh, with a fortune of fancy where he reminds you of the artifice of it all and i think it's it's kind of such a testament to the way his films are created to the way that he dreams up his films that he works on them and evolves them in collaboration with his his actors and his crew that when he does something like that too or the decisions he makes throughout whether it's yeah this is going to be an anthology movie and i'm going to just pair these stories together or whatever it might be there is there's always a jolt when he makes a decision like that, because I I think he's really successful at getting the audience to just lose themselves in the world that he's created. And when you say something now, I think with movies off like the world he's created, we're so kind of programmed to start thinking of world building and world building in like a much bigger kind of fantastical sense where it's almost more difficult to, to really make a place feel real and to make the people feel real and to bring in some movie flourishes in terms of your story and in terms of the stakes, but have it all feel so grounded in reality that you're, you're even more invested because it's not just like you're watching a movie. And I, I do really kind of get that feeling when you go through his work, there's, there's something that he just manages to get to. Uh, like i don't want to say like oh he finds some sort of level of truth in his storytelling all of that is probably stretched too far but he he finds something he finds something certainly that not every filmmaker can put their hand to Um, he manages to get to it always in his movies where do you want to go first as we kind of talk a little bit more about these two films specifically which one do you want to go to
1: i think uh wheel of fortune and fantasy um i was kind of doing some what are we going to say some calculations in my mind before this um about which film i thought uh was a more press depressing outlook on like humanity and the human experience and i think i landed on wheel of fortune and fantasy surprisingly enough just based on where we end and i and i'll kind of tell you why I think it's just because of the nature of the stories that they tell although uh, really two of the stories that mm-hmm. um, highlight this for me and I mean in the first story we get I think a rumination on what it means to end up with a decision that is against your own interest and what you want because somehow you've 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 taken the high road I mean, we get we get so many different conflicting emotions going on based on the three characters that we spend most of the time with. There's a uh, a giddy like jubilation at the idea of new love and the experience of meeting someone, connecting, and ha- and feeling like it's going to turn into something special. We get the the anguish, anxiety of someone that's stuck between a rock and a hard place and trying to. Kind of navigate conflicting feelings about two people, and then we get, uh, vindictive anger and um, like kind of a, a conniving nature in, in one of the characters that that ends with almost like a reluctance and a, just a release to to let something go. And I think there's just so much going on in 40 minutes, and in a way that we haven't quite like we've seen the love triangle played out on screen since the dawn of time and this is doing something just entirely unexpected and then as you as you note at a certain point it um it kind of it it robert frosts us and puts the two two woods or roads diverged in the wood and then eventually the one less traveled is taken um but we still get to see both roads Mm -hmm. um so i i came out of that that first vignette we'll call it like i guess three 40 minute character studies um kind of uh blown away and then my mom was further blown in the second one but yeah the, the first story featuring the love triangle and the people some people being in on what's happening and some not and just bottling together all those conflicting emotions um i thought was really powerful
0: yeah it's worth noting here for you you saw will fortune of fantasy first so that vignette is your first sampling too of, of Hamaguchi. I think it's a really kind of great snapshot. It also maybe helps rather than having to like, maybe the way I did it when I fired up, I I've literally kind of worked backwards where um, the run times are getting shorter and shorter. Now, every time I watch a Hamaguchi film, it seems like uh, which might be better than diving straight into happy hour. But I, I do think you just get something of his essence and yeah, the, the first segment of uh, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy, uh, which I believe is called Magic or Something Less Assuring. Great, great titles throughout um, these kind of episodes. Second one is Door Wide Open, third one once again. Um, there is there is just a moment at the end of that which is one of the most thrilling pieces of like filmmaking of the year for me, and it's so simple. Like, Anyone could do it on the tiniest of budgets. And it's just something that even now when I think of it, I think of like how many films I've seen try to do something to similar effect in an absolutely horrendously uninteresting and uncinematic way over the years. So to see just the kind of the conception of that and to see it executed like that and then added impact it carries because of it because as you said we're seeing one outcome and then we're actually having the director quite literally reframe our minds as to what's happening um I, I just think it was absolutely inspired like it's it's a genius it's a great story of like filled with brilliant acting and i just think throughout it's a really good piece of filmmaking but that's that's one of those moments i just think with a director you are here like okay this guy is on a completely different level because i could think of a lot of other very good directors who would not make some of the choices he makes to kind of get from point a to point b and to get themselves out of even some tight spots that they might have put themselves into so that's an entirely um magical fittingly enough i think um story and that, that kind of segment of Wheel of Fortune of Fantasy really is something that I've thought about a lot since seeing it the first time I rewatched just before we recorded here and it still it still lands but even in that it's it's interesting too and I don't know if you felt this then when you go to watch Drive My Car like you've the conversation in the back of the, the taxi between the two friends and it looks in lighting and everything so much. It looks so similar to how we shot a lot of the car stuff and drive my car. And honestly, the chauffeur is a fantastic device for filmmaking because you get to put your character in the backseat of a car, which is a great idea. If you're just trying to film in a car it makes things a lot simpler. You don't actually have to worry about your actor driving and all the other stuff, or you don't have to worry about completely changing your setup of your car. It's a, it's a pretty good hack, but I think it also makes for much more interesting composition in a car, and I guess in Whale, Fortune, and Fantasy, we get a lot more kind of two-shot with the characters side-by-side side, where then, by the time we get to draw my car, we're getting some of the best shot-reverse-shot editing that I, I've seen in years um, to really maximize the effect there, but that's that's an interesting kind of dynamic at play, too. You, you see not just that, but throughout the there are things that interest them. And yet he will find subtle ways to approach them a little bit differently each time where it still feels fresh, but you still have this kind of realization of, oh, he's, he's doing that again, but this time it's just a little bit different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was going to touch on that as well. And I, I can't remember if Wheel of Fortune and fantasy is also uh, in the dark. I feel like it's not. And I'm misremembering that and mashing them together, but like the way he uses just the lighting in the back seat of a car, in the, in and in the
0: car it is the taxi ride is in the dark with the same kind okay. of like amber lighting coming through.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to touch on. is just like there's something about the way that a person looks when they're just lit up by passing streetlights, and the like the tenor and the focus on where that light lands can change as the car moves, and for some reason it's it's really effective and especially as you're watching the emotion change on someone's face so yeah an incredible uh, bit of filmmaking in both films there
0: are we gonna progress to uh, you giving us some deeply erotic readings now is that <laughs>
1: is that yeah, the next stage here that's exactly what we're gonna do um and i think this is the the segment of his films that actually depressed me the most because uh, I think what it talks it says about society is like, we don't always get what we deserve. This rules.
0: The segment rules.
1: Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, we get just the, the full gamut of what a human being can be <laughs> genuine, duplicitous, uh, arrogant. And again, this is a care or a study, basically revolving around three characters and their relations with one another and how things progress. I mean, we're not spoiling things. Um, for obvious reasons, but I mean, we get uh kind of something that happens again in a lot of movies. It's where you know, characters it's it's almost like the the she's all that uh effect where you, you're entered, one character is involved with another character for duplicitous reasons to try and like either win something, pull one over on them, whatever it may be. It's like it's even and a they-
0: classic like Hitchcock esque murder, you know, like if you want to, it's a classic plot setup.
1: And then those those characters end up forming a genuine connection that makes the person you know pulling the duplicitous act just drop drop what they're doing and you know appreciate a real connection that they form with the, this person and, and like you said we get some of the uh the uh best the best acting in this sequence or in these three films I think comes here during the erotic reading in the professor's uh, room because you see how thoughtful he is about like perception and being in a situation that could tarnish his legacy the scene where she's reading she's getting to his erotic passage shuts the door and then he slowly walks up walks erotic passage
0: her. is not a great turn of phrase
1: uh erotic well erotic and just you know, it was all over the place uh I'm not going to say erotic anymore I don't like to um but he he opens the door and just like walks past her, opens the door, been like, uh, if, if anyone's walking by, they know nothing's going on. We are separated in this room. Okay, well, this is all above board. Door wide opens the... the
0: name of this uh, segment for a reason.
1: Oh, yeah, that, I guess I guess I should have uh, realized that as we were going on. And then seeing that uh, as careful as he was, it's just genuinely nice and moved by the interaction as he was forming that connection he's he, i mean he seemed to live a very isolated existence despite his success uh, and we we see that that he, he's not the cold calculated professor we're led to believe he is by the events that start this train in, in motion and then at the end of the day he doesn't get what he deserves and we get to see her stewing and regret and sadness and then we get to see the arrogant uh the the bad guy wins and i i just think it's there's a lot going on but it's a a fantastic story
0: i have not read the source material for um drive my car so i i can't i can't fully speak to this but what i know of uh i mean the famed writer haruki murakami um, wrote the, the source for Drive My Car as, por- as part of one of his anthologies of short stories and I think the thing that you hit on there, it is also true of Drive My Car but it, from what I know it is literally what Drive My Car the short story is which is this idea of you know someone um, coming into contact with someone else that they're naturally suspicious of or they have kind of ulterior motives for the relationship and ultimately, over time, becoming quite well, friendly. Yeah, you know, we'll go with friendly. Friendly is is the right way of putting it. And um, we might get into some more specifics on that in a second when we talk about Drive My Car. But that is what we're seeing here. But I I actually think in both cases, it's interesting. Like, Hamaguchi has changed quite a lot in Drive My Car from the source material. And how he's evolved that story is certainly really really interesting in the direction he's taken it and similarly in playing with a an idea and with a general structure that's quite close here you're right he has gone to somewhere that is considerably more bleak because even at surface level you have someone who um, is being very duplicitous and really well and truly up to no good and trying to catch someone out in something that would really only kind of ruin their lives and then even upon deciding, you know, oh, no, I won't do this. turns out people are dumb, you know, for all of the the plotting and the deception and the, oh, you know, I'm going to trick you out here. This ultimately all comes crumbling down because people are careless and uh, not anywhere near as smart as we would, like, think we are. And sometimes, you know, I guess the world comes back to bite you too, which is, is sort of um, what's at play here. I mean, we didn't mention it up top, but it's, it's worth, I guess, introducing this point too. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is entirely about coincidence. These three stories, they're linked together by coincidence. And honestly, this is something that is just weaved have out Hamaguchi's films. Any of those films I've seen, coincidence plays a major role. This is like screenwriting 101 of what not to do in a movie, what not to do, like avoid coincidence at all part, at all costs because people will freak out. It's like, what are you doing? It feels cheap. It's unearned because there's this coincidence. And I, I think it speaks to just how well his movies are crafted and conceived that it never feels unearned. It more just feels like, yeah that's that's the way the world works you know there's an element of fate at play there's something there's something greater not in any kind of um spiritual or religious way but there's just you know greater force at work of you know best laid plans it doesn't really matter in hamaguchi's world and i think it's uh, maybe i'm a glass half empty kind of person too but i think there's there's certainly something that is very reflective of real life in that and in his films, it often manifests itself in coincidence. And coincidence drives the plot. And there's certainly no shortage of coincidence in Drive My Car then too. But it's also, it's the way that he takes that and uses it is just, it's toying with every notion of why you shouldn't use coincidence and why like 99.999% of screenwriters would never go near it and will be best advised to continue to do that because they wouldn't be able to pull it off like this but it just it works so well within his world that he can have these moments that the movies pivot on and it doesn't feel cheaper unearned instead it catches you off guard much like things in real life can catch you off guard and uh, i think you know the Maybe the most just kind of like completely on the nose of all the elements of coincidence of Wheel of Fortune and Fancy is the Sagawa versus Sagawa, which leads to an email being sent to the wrong person and disastrous, you know, fallout from there.
1: Fallout indeed.
0: Uh, The last part of Wheel of Fortune and Fancy is once again, which I don't know, I think we might be in agreement here, but this to me does not work as well as the first two parts. I have read some really good writing from other people who like it says the reason this movie is great is because of the third part. And I respect that. I'm just not there. It's not it doesn't work for me in quite the same way. Um I think it is a logical kind of extension and it makes sense as an inclusion in this kind of grouping of shorts that he's put together as an anthology film because Yeah, it is speaking to a lot of the same ideas, although I would say with a slightly sunnier outlook overall, maybe, (laughs) um, than what we're getting in the previous two. But it could just be a case of, you know, certain things are going to speak to certain people at a certain time, and this isn't doing it for me just yet. But did you feel that too? I'm not saying that... um, it wasn't good or that it takes the whole film down as a whole, but it it just didn't, I guess didn't excite me in the way that the the first two parts had managed to.
1: Yeah. The conception is basically like a pretty good black mirror episode. Honestly, when when you break it down just based on the world we're introduced into, I think, I, I think it's, you know, says some interesting things about the fallibility of human memory and also just, uh the links will go to to avoid an awkward awkward confrontation when there's been a misunderstanding at play which i think is really interesting i mean uh i think there may be an
0: amplified cultural kind of resonance to that in a in an eastern culture like in japan too
1: yeah that's something i haven't thought of just because it but that's true And, and it felt so universal because i i think about if i were to run into an old colleague or college friend on the street and if i didn't know their name would i just s- s- hey man you're gonna have to refresh my memory what's your name or what i've been like hey buddy what have you been up to and it would probably be the latter would i end up going to that person's house or inviting them in my house immediately after i don't know that my uh courtesy would extend that far but uh that's really interesting and then it i think it it's it ends up i think i like the ending more than i like the beginning i'm not sure i think i like where it goes because i think one thing in hamaguchi's work especially in drive my car is unpacking that each person in the world has their own individual story and their history and maybe things that broke them or hurt them along the way that made them who they are and uh are the reason for why they're searching for certain things in life and i think that's what that that kind of unpacks here especially um for um, the character who I think first thinks that there's been a connection with someone from their past, and you know it's it's less effective than the other two, and it might be it might be because I'm using that in 2019. We don't we're off the grid now, and like we don't have the uh, that's also digital...
0: that's kind of a. It's a challenge too. I just think intellectually, for me, I found after the first two parts, which are grounded in just complete reality. And it's the touch of alternate reality, even though everything else is like exactly as it should be. I, I don't, it does maybe just feel a little bit out of place in terms of that particular device. And I, I even wonder, interestingly, like that feels like a device that's kind of there to explain away some coincidences like I, I think you could tell the story without that you could you could tell the story and that there's been a mix-up and someone ends up at the wrong high school reunion and you know I mean does anyone really care remember everyone I mean particularly if someone if you wouldn't have lots of really close friends or something I I think there is kind of you could suspend disbelief in other ways where I, I do think that particular choice is a little it's a little different. It feels quite extreme within the framework of these three things being grouped together as one.
1: Yeah. And to your point before, I don't think it does anything to lessen the whole. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it might be a reason that you score at a four and a half instead of a five on some arbitrary rating scale or whatever it is. And it's, it might be the thing that bumps it from the 10th movie on your movies of the year list to 15th or something. Mm, we're but very overall. i do not specific here, Andrew. Uh, no, these are all hypotheticals. I've only done cursory planning and research into my lists. You guys will get them at it, imminently in a few months. We're we're approaching a the home stage a month. Well
0: What's le- today's date. Less than a month. Right right around the month. We've got probably three or four. You know, you gotta head down. You gotta keep going.
1: We got a lot going on in the coming weeks. I've made it very difficult on myself. Um anyway, yeah overall i think it's quite an accomplishment as well to to tell three complete stories and three uniquely different character studies that all touch on sort of some of the same issues especially in the the first and the second but uh life is messy adam it sure
0: is um okay let's move to drop my car the the film that if you're listening to this and you haven't seen any of these films, I would say there's probably the best chance of you checking out sometime soon. I am certain it will get a whole lot of curiosity that may lead to some people just having a new world of cinema open to them, a new director that they're fascinated by and um, intent on following his career. Or for a lot of people, it might just be like, what is this? This is not what I think of his movies. Um, honestly, I'm fine either way. I think it's just good if people are watching a, a broader selection of movies uh, and having a an expanded understanding of what a film is, you know, I, I think I I'll speak for myself, but it may even be more true, I guess, for you or for a lot of people growing up in America where it's, it's just a natural, if you're from an English speaking country, you've got a very well defined idea of what a movie is and where movies come from and how they're made and you know the beats that they're going to take this obviously doesn't apply to every single film made in, you know the US or the UK or whatever it might be but there there is something there there is a certainly a type that we have in mind and there are kind of um, generic tools that will be in play and just a kind of informed understanding of how a movie works what a movie is and this is not the most radical film that's going to completely upend that but if you've never watched anything outside of you know hollywood style filmmaking before or certainly american filmmaking I, I do think there is something there which a lot of people could find to be quite different so draw my car i guess first started to make a splash this year when it had its world premiere at Cannes. um it was in the mix for the Palme d'Or. it won multiple awards palm dorals we went to uh Julia de to Tan, and it just kind of started a wave of interest I would say someone who was paying attention and just really not specifically to this or even that it was the, the new Hamaguchi, but just to Khan and the films coming out this certainly did not kind of land on the, the wider international film radar as oh this is the breakthrough um for a language film that's gonna is gonna be a best picture nominee I, th- I think even now that's really surprising it was fittingly I think much quieter in a way like absolute rave reviews but not in a way where you felt like everyone was gonna be like grabbing their friends and just being like come on we've gotta go see a new Hamaguchi now which is not quite the world we're living in but we're certainly a step closer to it um, but it has built, it has built, it has been a real critical darling. It has kind of swept um, US Critics Awards in a way that is just kind of unparalleled. And I think that ultimately brought it to the Oscars, where it just at a certain point, if a movie is so unanimously being hailed as great and as the best of the year, it gets very, very difficult for the Oscars to just be like, no, that's not it. And also, I guess there is a a crossover between those tastemakers and the influence they would have on sectors of the Academy. But yeah, we arrive at this point where it is, as I mentioned at the top, nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and of course, Best International Film. Uh, I would say it will win one. And you never know, like maybe maybe it goes home empty handed. I don't know how much that matters. But the fact that it's there and this is a conversation we were planning on having anyway, but now that there is kind of a reason for more people to be interested is, is great. So for the movie itself, um, it is incredibly complex in terms of its structure. I don't mean that in terms of that when you're watching it, you're completely baffled, you're struggling to follow along. But I, I will say that you're aware of like the levels of architecture that are going on in telling the story and the fact that it is so seamless is something that even while you're watching it, you're kind of wowed by. So the protagonist, uh, Yusuke Kifuku, um, played in one of the absolute best performances of the year by Hidatoshi Nishijima, is a theater director theater director and actor and when the film opens he and his wife who seems like is working in kind of tv production at this point while also doing some screenwriting kind of on the side of that in her own time um they're they're kind of going through it it's apparent that there's some stuff going on um the marriage doesn't seem entirely happy. There's still there's still some love there, but you get a feeling that there's some underlying issues. Pretty early in the film, we learn what those underlying issues are and that they're both dealing with um, the loss of a, a daughter at a very young age, and that in the time since, they have not had any more children. And I guess to an extent, they're both still grieving the loss of that daughter and trying to just come to terms with themselves and who they are and who they are as a I guess as a couple um, without the purpose that at once I guess they thought they were going to have together that they no longer have and from that we very quickly branch off into getting a sampling of their individual lives and this leads us to a point where within 35 to 40 minutes the opening credits roll at that point, which is just such a ballsy move. I love it so much. Um, It's, it's just like, oh, I guess I just watched like a 45-minute prologue. But um, Yasuki Kifuku's world has turned upside down. Is it a spoiler to say the thing that actually happens technically before the credits?
1: I mean, it feels like it is just because of how long the prologue yeah, that's is. that's
0: true. But then, how do you it's, talk about anything else in the film? Do we just put up a spoiler warning here? Is this what we have to do? I don't really want to do that when I know a lot of people might want to see this, but I've not have checked it out yet.
1: I think I think we have to throw up the spoiler warning because it's very tough to talk about two additional hours of a film and not addressing the thing. Okay, that well, kicks off. let's
0: let's let's wait one second. Okay, let's let's try and fill in some of the other. I guess things that Hamaguchi is doing here before we get into the story itself, where we do have to talk about something that happens in what is essentially, you know, a prologue that is about half the length of most feature films.
1: Um, (laughs) I mean, do you mean what he's doing in the prologue?
0: No, no, I I even mean more generally. So for example, um, in setting up a scenario where we have multiple characters, one who, may not be like the most outwardly dealing with their their current situation or their emotional state they are also having to try and communicate and communicate through a group full of people a group full of actors exactly what they want exactly what they're trying to work through on a day-by-day basis and then you also have this for probably two-thirds of them, this largely silent figure which is the chauffeur that is driving that character around and it's obvious that it was to me that the whole film is kind of, it's leading to a point where, you know, we're going to get to moments of realization or something that's essentially kind of emotionally climactic for both of those characters, but the way of doing that and how the stories within the stories are mirroring the beats emotionally. So for example, something that is kind of widely being, Um, written about and talked about in any conversation of this film is that um, Kafuku is directing uh, a production of Chekhov's play Uncle Vanya and what is particularly interesting I just I love this as a choice just generally I think oh that's a really cool idea but also just to see it staged in a movie like this I think is really really cool um, it is this is a... also
1: the first, uh, the first introduction of Chekhov's fuckboy to a movie? <laughs> anyway, continue.
0: Well, thank you, Andrew. This is a multilingual production, was what I was about to say. Um, basically, Kafka is working with this idea. We, the, actually, maybe the very opening scene of the film is uh, a staging where he is directing and he's performing in Waiting for Gato and we're seeing this same multilingual um, technique at play where even for like non-Japanese or I guess non-Asian speakers is more accurate because of the way this this film blends in different languages um, your subtitles are differentiated with different types of brackets and you know different tools um, so that you know there's you know, there's, there's some different things going on. They're not, they're not at all. It's not a conversation happening in Japanese. It's a combination you know, of a Japanese actor and a Korean actor, and they're speaking their own languages. And I guess the idea um, within the story is that then the acting becomes something much more, I guess, primal and physical and emotional, which I do think we actually see play out then in both rehearsals and the staging of the play towards the end of the film. And, um, and then in physical ways too. I mean, we we have a character in Juice later who ends up acting in the play who is deaf and communicating through Korean sign language. And just even the idea of how all of that is bouncing off each other. I just think is like it is a genius idea just to kind of watch the construction of that in a movie. And that is before it's so closely mirroring. Key moments in Uncle Vanya's, they're being staged where Kafuku's mindset is, to where other characters in the film are. Like it is so intricate and so multi-layered that it, it really is operating on so many different planes. Like that's that's kind of what some of before we get into specifics and just say, Oh, spoilers and scare some people out of here without hearing anything. I, I think some of that the stuff that is just like even as a curiosity for people who are into movies. I mean, most of those people are gonna watch it anyway. Um, but there's so much going on, and to to just I guess work through in your own mind how did Hamaguchi come up with telling this story in this particular way is just remarkable. Like it is it is mind-blowing, and it, it makes me think too. Like, I I'm very doubtful, for example, he will win adapted screenplay at the Oscars, and I don't know if like a couple of weeks from now when we're talking true locking in our favorites and all we would have had at the Oscars or something like that. I don't know if I'll be like, yeah, I'd have given it to drive my car. It's possible. I haven't, haven't decided exactly what yet, but it's not necessarily the first thing you're going to think of as like best screenplay in part, because there's something that feels so authentic, so real, so improvised to it as well. But the actual kind of the scaffold that is put in place here for the story for the kind of emotional backdrop is just mind-boggling it's so complex and yet you just you can't see any of the kind of workings while it's going on like it's it's just like how else would you make this while you're watching it which is really astonishing
1: yeah it's interesting that you speak about the screenplay because upon remembering which specific awards it was nominated for uh i thought you know international feature and adapted screenplay and then i looked at the other adapted screenplay nominees and i was like oh that is a tough field maybe i'm wrong there um but yeah um are we, do we want to to dig into kind of the the spoiler zone you got, or, if, or... if you
0: haven't got anything else that you want to drop in just in the pre-spoiler kind of well then we'll we'll put the spoiler warning
1: up um i don't think i have anything in the pre-spoiler realm other than i think what the prologue does and it serves the rest of the film well is in a really short time span we kind of get a whole picture of Kafuku and Otto's relationship and why they are the way that they, they are and like what's happened to them and then I think once we get towards the latter stages of the film some of those things that come before the credits had this enormous payoff from a thematic standpoint and just from the entire story Um, to
0: me the scene of the year gets paid off because of what you're seeing and what is essentially a prologue and I'm sorry
1: for calling Tak Kasuki a fuckboy but (coughs) when we spoil the film you will know why because he he has earned the title
0: Yeah, you don't stop trying to troll me with your uh, with your Takasuki takes before we we move on into spoiler territory. Um, yeah, I had something else there, and now you derailed me too. I was like, I have one other pre spoiler, um, thought for people, but I oh, I I know what it was, it's another example too. Just that, that we keep calling it a prologue, which is maybe not the best way of putting it, although it is kind of what it is again it's breaking a lot of like screenwriting rules like you're almost watching two movies and that first movie is completely engrossing in its own right for all of its own reasons it's maybe the most kind of gripping and trilling section of the film in, in some spots and then like it's if you if you conceive that story like in any kind of classical screenplay sense what we're seeing in those first 40 minutes are a great backstory for a character that we're going to meet then the way that we meet him once that moves on and the character that we follow throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, you know, that is like textbook of how you do that. And Hamaguchi just shows something that is so rich and ultimately gets paid off all the more in exploring that character and the person that he now is and what he's dealing with later on. Because of also giving the time to it. It's just again, it's it's something that if you don't give it a lot of thought, you're like, oh, well, that really worked, but like you you might just think that really worked. (laughs) Where when you actually kind of dive into it, it's a case of that's very bold and quite unconventional. You don't see a movie do that a whole lot. Like the reason that the credits are dropping 40 minutes in is because he has decided to make the part that usually would not be in the movie, just as compelling as the movie and understood that in doing that, then you've got to make that payoff and you've got to weave it in in the right way later on. And it informs the story brilliantly. Okay. Spoiler warning. Andrew is eager to get into drive my car and some of its more colorful characters. So if you have not seen the film and you do not want anything spoiled, now is the time to, uh, turn off the pod and come back when you've when you've watched it
1: yeah so i can dig into some of the spoilers i i will play re- recapper and uh cassette tape narrator Great. So to speak for this portion um so i've, I've got the tapes
0: I- if i ever need to like if something something happens and i ever need to podcast with you, maybe i can just like run old episodes and have different conversations
1: yeah, exactly. That, that works perfectly. So, uh, that, well, that'll be interesting. I, I mean, that might be in your future. Who knows um, if I ever if I get hit by a bus or something. Um, so Kafuku and Otto's marriage, as as we say, is is a little, not necessarily strange. There's still love there, but the shared grief and some of the unsaid things in the relationship are, are clearly causing strange. One interesting thing about Otto is, is in her work as a screenwriter her ideas for her screenplays are conceived during sex and recounted to Kafuku and he has to basically narrate them back to her the next morning It's even, Uh,
0: even more than that it seems to be the implication is they're conceived like it's some sort of state of bliss at the point of orgasm and then She just comes out with the idea. She just like starts reciting off what is the equivalent of pages and pages and pages, and she remembers nothing of this the next morning. And he, you know, speaks back to her, and she's like, "Yeah, that's good," and writes it, which I I mentioned earlier. Just jump in here, like Haruki Murakami. Uh, I, I need to start reading a lot of Haruki Murakami stuff because one of my other films of like the past favorite films of the past 10 years like by a long way was Burning um, Lee Chang Dong's film which is also uh, a Murakami adaptation and the whole opening of this film I, I don't even know if this is I don't believe it is kind of taken as strictly from the source material but it captures a vibe that also exists in Burning which is just 100 percent it's like it's it's my jam. Yeah, you know, this is this is the kind of weird that I'm into my movies being. But yeah, just that is that is the breakdown to be specific. I was uh, very specific too.
1: Yeah, very specific. Furthermore, <laughs> Kafuku uh I guess is originally going to jury duty, but his flight gets delayed. So when he goes back home, um he finds Otto uh having sex with who he assumes is Koji Takatsuki who is a young actor that she's working with on a new show that he was introduced to earlier in the film at one of his plays and uh so he does not confront her with this information he goes about takes his later flight goes about his jury duty and just says nothing to Otto um one day he tells his wife he's leaving he has plans she says she wants to talk when they get home he kind of drives around aimlessly just trying to you know de- delay what is inevitably going to be a conversation where something's brought up he comes home she's died of what appears to be a brain hemorrhage and then we flash to 2 years later with him driving to an unknown location credits roll and our the rest of our movie plays on
0: Yeah, and also, I guess, speaking to the resonance of the movie and some of the choices in it, I don't know the location he's going to is uh, Hiroshima, Um, which for very obvious reasons, like the, the historical kind of potency of using that as a setting and the theater festival being there. Um, And in the film, you actually you see what in a lot of ways is this kind of quite beautiful, modern, ultra modern city that is um, being born out of essentially radioactive ruins, um, which is, yeah, it's a very apt location, I guess, for the point in his life he's at and for him to go and try to work out what's next and work through a lot of stuff which is what the rest of the movie essentially becomes and from there we get to see him go through the casting process I mean some of the things from the earlier section um, of the movie that you didn't mention even before Otto's death is that um, Kafuku ends up in a car accident he gets diagnosed with glaucoma and I believe in the novel that is the reason why he is not driving. And there some of the other stuff that's brought into this is not like the, the whole theater thing is very much Amaguchi and it's him bringing in what interests him. And honestly his process as a director and into putting stuff together into the movie and thinking it's a really interesting device, which turns out he was 100% right. It's a really interesting device to explore this character. Um, I don't know why he didn't stick with that particular choice as a reason for why he couldn't drive. I think that's a, there's, there is something that again, I mean, he he trusts in coincidence or there's something that feels a little bit convoluted about the theater festival saying, you know, we just won't allow anyone to drive because a few years ago, um, one of our, our, our residents or our guest lecturers or whatever kind of terminology they were using, um, happens to, you know, knock someone down. So now they have to have a chauffeur to drive them, but whatever way that comes about, that is what essentially sets the main structure of the film in place. Um, the relationship that as much as it is kind of unexplored for a lot of the film is ultimately where, um, the emotional kind of the meat of this text lies and that is the relationship between kafuku and his driver and uh, watari where did, i don't know where exactly because there's so many places and i don't want to just go through this in its totality so do you want to jump to some favorite moments some favorite characters some of the things that really impressed you or stood out to you
1: yeah, I think um, I can start in an area that I know um, won't be what you'll bring up, um, just because I don't want to steal your thunder there. Because it's a scene we referenced before, um, that we'll talk about again. But I'll, I'll I'll say one of my favorite aspects is of the film, and you know, obviously, one of the large driving forces is, you know, as Kafuku and Masaki, his his driver, as their relationships develops and how they go from almost it's almost like to kafuku masaki doesn't exist as he notes because of how you know great her driving is it feels like he's kind of floating and not even on the road and then as as they reveal to each other one another's past and kind of the tragedies that have befallen them uh, i really love how they that relationship deepens and it come it goes from you know just kind of two ships passing in the night both doing a job to a real friendship and a connection uh as misaki talks to kafuku about her abusive mother who's the one that taught her how to drive and to avoid being you know beaten she learned to drive over the bumpy roads without waking her mother in the back seat and then kafuku eventually talks about uh his daughter that passed away and then Otto's infidelities and, um, some of the unresolved grief and regret he has there. And I think my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when. Kafuku's talking about his grief and his regret over. Otto dying and mentioning that he was just driving around aimlessly. Cause he, you know, didn't ha- know how to deal with the situation at home. And what if he had gotten there earlier and was able to do something that could have, could have saved Otto. And he has all this kind of unprocessed anger, grief, and res- or resentment towards himself, anger toward Otto for not being truthful to her, but more than anything, just love and sadness that he can never see her again. And in those moments, he didn't realize that. And then masaki tells the story of her mother's passing in kind of a landslide and notes that you know she made it out of the landslide and could have potentially saved her mother but all the context around you know the abuse and you know some of the happy times where are having with her mother she made that decision in the moment not to go back and they kind of can connect over that regret and just how they process that grief as the years go on and kind of learning how to forgive themselves and and their past. And so that that moment when they're having that um kind of full on conversation reveal as they drive to um Misaka's hometown is, is probably one of the, the, Kaido, the scenes that stuff sorry she's Yeah, exactly that's one of the scenes almost stuff with me, club,
0: the along Sorry, Andrew. You were saying it was serious, and I was the person bringing in the
1: phone. That's very rare. <laughs> Normally, it's uh, it's it's me that that cuts in with the, uh, the uh, comments. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a very powerful scene, and uh, of two people that recognize a brokenness in one another, and I think they each can see that the other doesn't need to live it, and that kind of sadness and resentment but they don't see it in themselves and i think that conversation helps them both move forward
0: yeah i agree completely i think it's all very well said for me uh like the only thing that really i don't want to unpack this to an an inch of its life i think people should just watch it and watch it again and experience it and literally go on the drive uh with the characters but i i i think that the best scene of the year, without doubt, for me, um, comes in what's, I guess, a confrontation um, between Kafuku and Takatsuki, although maybe less confrontation than kind of confession. Um, and also, this sense of these two men just trying to figure out, learn from the other about this woman who was in both of their lives and maybe the the first point where kafuku gets some information where he can then build on that and realize well actually i i think as um as masaki says later on to him is like well you know to the effect of you maybe you just knew her better than anyone and she loves you more than anyone and what does all the rest of it really have to do with it i think is there's an element of that to the movie but the way that I guess we reached the narrative climax of the Dikafuku the and well Yasuki to be to be more specific Yusuki Kafuku and his wife his um his late wife Otto's relationship and really where we were brought into the movie and the hook for us is this story that we we alluded to earlier on that um, this kind of developing screenplay that we're, we're hearing her kind of recite um, after the, the two characters have had sex. And I will say just from the beginning of the movie, I, it's good. You know, it's a really good, she's got something there. You know, there's there's certainly something kind of gripping about where that story was going. And we obviously only get to a certain point and then that's the end of that. And really the payoff for so much of that prologue and the thing that so neatly um, brings everything together and gives the proper context for all the events of the film. And for a lot of also what we've been seeing play out through the rehearsals from Kilvania and everything else is, well, to Yasuki, that story is, you know, that's unfinished in his mind. He does not have an end for that. And, I guess he doesn't have that kind of closure more generally at that point too in terms of Otto and um, his relationship to her and all of the guilt that he's still carrying around. But of course he does know that she was having an affair. and He was having an affair with Takatsuki. So he's able to fill in the blanks turns out. He's got a he's got the remainder of the story to tell. And it's such a simple piece of filmmaking that is powered by just absolutely brilliant acting it's back to the thing we talked about earlier for the taxi scene from wheel of, wheel of uh, fortune fancy where it's so well lit um it just has such kind of gravitas and there's like an inbuilt tension to it the lighting feels suitably tense and at that point to Takatsuki in particular and um, I suppose we've moved past the point of feeling like he's He's operating with the world's most sensitive trigger, um, but they're still there. There's something that's just a little, a little bit of a live wire. There's a loose cannon element that is very much the fore of his character at that point. And there's something unnerving about him. So as he elaborates on the story and gives the details, and the story in a lot of ways kind of gets more and more disturbing, but also there are really interesting kind of comparative points and parallels to what we're seeing unfold and in terms of whose stories who who's to tell and how people factor into it it's just absolutely mind-blowing and for me the thing that impressed me the most is um i am someone who i've probably complained multiple times on the podcast about just how lazy hollywood editing in particular can be where you just fall into shot reverse shot editing and we're just going from one person's face to another and it's just it tends to be autopilot editing rather than done for effect and this is an example of where that entire scene plays out shot reverse shot um i I think once they get into conversation we don't have a single second where they're both in the frame at the one time instead we're getting the, the two actors really kind of locking eyes with you as the audience and they they're performing off of the camera um as the stand-in for the other and it's the simplest form of filmmaking there is and with the right actors the right performances and the right script it can still be just about as powerful as anything else it can be just as dazzling as like the the most high budget and audacious set piece you can imagine like that sequence is just it is so so alive to me watching it it really just pops off the screen and it's like I remember like <laughs> seeing it in the theater and you're just like back in your seat like back head kind of right push back eyes locked on the screen because it's it's really it's kind of hitting you in the chest of just like this is this is really something special. I just thought the whole, as a payoff to the earlier parts of the story and as a really strong, important moment to progress then just as like a piece of character development for Yusuke to get him to the point where the scene that you just spoke about, which is ultimately the scene that, you know, if we want to see his emotional growth and development, if that's really the point of the film and it is the point of most films, like to get to that point, you need this one. And to just manage to pull it all together in the way that it was done is truly incredible. And I just, I am in all of that scene because of its simplicity but the reality is it's it can only get away with being so formally simple because like the complexity of telling the story to get to that point and then having the story within the story be as strong as that and then getting the performances out of those actors and having them play it in that way. All of that takes so so much to get right and yet it's shot in the simplest way possible and it, it looks absolutely incredible and the impact of it is unbelievably strong so that for me is something where like I feel like we'll often be doing this and we'll be talking about a film and I'll be like oh yeah there was this shot and this is what was happening and it it really is it's like all the bells and whistles this is the opposite and it's still like it's just it's the pinnacle of like understanding how to utilize visual style. If you're a filmmaker, it's like knowing when the moment is right. Like don't just don't just use this as an easy way to cut around the scene and to go back and forth and show the audience. Like save something like this. Save like your kind of close-ups, shot reverse shot at editing for a moment of real weight. Because then you're letting the audience in to the character is kind of emotional space in a much deeper way, rather than using that as something kind of trail way, just to, to quickly get you through a, a standard conversational scene.
1: Well, that's what I've got. And that was the scene that I anticipate you anticipated you speaking about. So I definitely didn't want to steal your thunder because I, I knew uh, you had, would have something to say there. Um, and you did. And I think I, I was reading in a review earlier today, um, that I think, just the way the lighting works as Takatsuki's telling the story and the seriousness and kind of the haunting nature of what he's saying, he almost uh, looks like a ghost. Is is what the reviewer wrote that just because of the way the lights hitting him, and like he's getting almost like not demented, but he's getting very dark as he recounts the particularly violent aspects of the the story that Otto finished. I wish I could remember who that reviewer was but he's also like that... he has
0: been lost to darkness by that point like he's just committed an act which is going to be his downfall.
1: Correct. And I I think just that Did you by, worked, by the way so... I've, I've seen
0: this multiple times um but I felt that was pretty apparent on first watch. Did you feel that before like the I guess the reveal comes? Do you did you have a sense that this guy was like really gonna snap because i don't think it's trying to make it like an absolute shock like it's very clearly there in terms of the irritation it's actually a really nice shot through a window where they're both sitting at the bar and they turn to the window and we're not seeing the window but it's clearly um the same guy who's later taking photos but did you like for me what i'm saying is i guess the first time i watched that scene I already had the feeling that he had snapped and then it's just the confirmation comes later did you have any sense of that or
1: yeah absolutely and I think that it's um it's it's built up a few times also through conversations that he has with kafuku that he's learned nothing from his past mistakes obviously he has that time in the bar where he snaps initially at someone taking their photo and then we see him get into a car accident and it's clear that maybe he's attempting or has engaged in a sexual relationship with his co-lead in the play Um, and Kafuku catches him kind of in a lie later when he said he was just trying to lend her an ear. His his audition
0: scene also is incredibly creepy and intense and the way that uh, Yasuki reacts to break that scene up is really just kind of um, it's pointing to everything that's to come
1: yeah absolutely and and then obviously he sprints kind of back to the car he'd been off and it's clearly he was up to something he's like oh let's get out of here kind of a situation so um yeah i think it it was not a surprise but it was still a natural build-up to that to that big moment and and that scene in the car in particular i think one of the the things that kafu this movie is about is Kafuka kafuku being haunted by his past and like looking for things to move on, but like the there's almost like a self destructive quality to some of his his decisions, like so never just casting
0: co- Takatsuki,
1: yeah, casting Takatsuki, but but that goes back to his old life. Like, he he never confronted Otto about these things that were like tearing him up inside because he didn't want to lose her, and so he has a tendency to just make these decisions that only bring torment upon himself, and so. Takatsuki almost seeing seeming like a ghost that's haunting him there are a a bunch of other ghosts haunting him in this film but just like visually that that was stunning in the moment and and just the the way that scene is played um was tremendous I'm, I'm trying to think of other aspects of of the film that really stand out to me I think all of the uh the audition scenes and all of the rehearsal scenes kind of Build towards the conclusion which is this cathartic moment that almost sees him move past like all of the ghosts and all of his issues and so I think without without seeing how like how his and especially it gives you a little bit of insight into his creative process and just who he is as an artist because you know the notion of having a play with several different languages all coming together as one and interacting with each other is interesting and, and especially as you see how he involves um the deaf actress who turns out to be the wife of, of one of the I think festival organizers or producers however however that said she ends up being one of the more powerful performers in the play and I think that just goes to show to like show how unique he is as an artist and that he is he is kind of really working through something and his, his creativity is real and genuine and he's it's got something going there and I don't know, f- freeing himself from the past might help him continue to tap into to whatever he's got going. As this yeah. movie, as much as it is about grief and love and the different types of love, it's also kind of about the creative process.
0: For sure, 100%. And how I I would guess for Hamaguchi, a lot of those that are just I guess more important emotions in his life are tied to the creative process too. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to to say that when his imagining of this story involves him bringing so much of that in and weaving that in, and it being so central also to to the character in the story. Uh, any other uh, Takatsuki thoughts you need to get off your chest? You seems to be you were eager earlier before we put up the the spoiler warning.
1: Uh I mean I just think he's kind of a bad guy. He's definitely um, a bad guy. But like there's also I think he gets humanized in some moments in particular some of the scenes with him and Kafuku. Obviously, you know, I made the disparaging comments about him because I think uh he thinks about his own sex life before anything else. It w- it would appear. Uh but then there are moments where he's expressing like a genuine love. For Otto in his past. And it's clear that, you know, in a scenario where it could seem like he has the upper se- hand with Kafuku because he was having an affair with his wife, he's genuinely jealous of Kafuku because he got to be her husband. So there's something really interesting in kind of that juxtaposition of both men maybe feeling like, not, I don't want to say Kafuku's jealous of him, but both men feeling like, not equals with the other person across from them for one reason or, or another uh, Kafuku, especially in that one moment because he got the end of the story and like he may have known that she was having these affairs and things like that but I think being him also being able to be a part of that creative process during it is almost like a second knife in his back and so it's Yeah, but so Takatsuki, you know, I I said he was a bad guy, but there are moments of, you know, humanity that seep in there. And I think that's a testament to the performance and and the direction and the screenplay. But like, I, I don't know, it's just a very complex web of characters.
0: Yeah, and he's just deeply immature. Like, I, I don't actually know what age he's supposed to be, but he comes across as a child. Like, he really d- he does come across as someone who's, like, barely an adult. Um, and even, like, looking up to Yusuke as, like, a father figure and trying to work some stuff out as the film goes on and even in seeking him out for advice and as a sounding board and just to talk things through... Um, but yeah just an incredibly kind of well sketched out group of characters um like just they're they're all just kind of really well formed i love the dinner scene um with the the translator and producer i can't remember producer is probably the wrong word given the kind of theater festival setup of what it is but um that character and his wife the the deaf actress like that scene is just fantastic and is also very different to a lot of the more intense scenes that we've talked about too that is a scene where it's like it's hard for a western audience anyway to watch a kind of traditional you know sitting down to dinner and that kind of conversation without going to ozu like it's it's not ozu it's a very modernized version like one of the things that stood out to me in that sequence particularly because the film just isn't like this otherwise is the very prominent coca-cola on the table <laughs> and it's it's kind of jarring and that is it almost feels intentional in a way of like yeah this is not ozu um or this is not your classic japanese cinema and there's always that kind of that edge running through hamaguchi's work but you can also you could see in the setup and it's so classical in terms of the way to make some of those reveals and the way to bring a little bit more out of Yasuki. and I, I think really what the key function of that scene ultimately ends up being is bring a little bit more out of Yasuki and Misaki in each other's company to then allow them to open up more directly to each other from that point on like that's that's all very classical as a way to construct that um, but I just really like that sequence the rehearsal in like the outdoor courtyard space is another really, really strong sequence. Um, this is just an absolute knockout masterpiece of a movie. And I'm glad we talked about it. I'm glad like we've got to talk about it in some of the framing that we have, which is this is an Academy Award nominated movie. Like The Oscars are dumb and they make lots of dumb decisions. Fewer people might care than ever, but there are still people who care and it, it will still matter. It matters just in a basic sense of, like this movie's in a lot more theaters than it was and even in places where it has been like for example I know it's the case here it has been and gone well now it's back like this is what happens for Oscar winning movies so what that's going to mean just in terms of potential earnings for this film worldwide but also just continuing to raise Hamaguchi's reputation and empower him to continue to basically do whatever he does and also for his future works, and I hope also his past works, and um, to be available to a much wider audience. That's a, a really, really great thing. One thing I should note here is that Wheel of Fortune and Fancy, I believe, is widely available to rent in the US and has been for quite some time. And um, Joy My Car is still primarily, if not exclusively, theatrical. It is not playing wide in the US, but it's quite close to it. Like you see, um. Jana's films put out like every day their list of cities and towns across the U.S. where it's playing. It's as wide as something in limited release goes, would be the best way I could put it. But very much worth noting if you have listened, we should have probably led with this rather than past the spoiler point. But if you've listened, you have yet to see this film. You've yet to see any of Hamaguchi's films. You want to see them? With a Fortune fantasy is available for you to rent. I think pretty much around the world at this point um drive my car in the us will be available on hbo max from i think it's march 3rd if i remember correctly um if you want to dive deeper happy air and Osaka one and two both streaming on the criterion channel in the us right now i have a very strong feeling the likes of movie around the world will pick up a lot of a lot of Hamaguchi in the the weeks ahead and hopefully some of the stuff that I myself haven't even been able to see yet, but really strong recommendation. And even if you are like Andrew was coming into this and you're like, not someone who finds yourself firing up Japanese cinema very often or aren't all that familiar. I think it's a good starting point. Like I think if you were to watch this and then say, go watch some, uh, films, you'd get more out of them and then that would be a good way to maybe then work your way back to Ozu. And I think Kurosawa is maybe someone that a lot of people have seen because, I don't know, because this was like little known films like star Wars where you hear of all the, the Kurosawa influences. I think people who are probably really interested in that are interested in Westerns have certainly gone and explored some of Kurosawa's works. But um, I think the kind of the classical Japanese drama, there is something in Hamaguchi's work that is very much reflectable, but it is also it's, it's bringing what is modern Japanese cinema and modern world cinema to the fore as well within that. And I think it's, it's a good gateway. So um, I hope everyone will get the opportunity to dive in a little bit more. All right. I think that is it for us on Hamaguchi on, uh, with a fortune and fantasy and drive my car. Uh, next, are we doing what we, what we said we're going to do next week?
1: Yeah, I think we might as well.
0: Okay, so next time that you hear from us, we will be talking about the recently released available on HBO Max in the US and in other territories around the world that HBO Max is available. Uh, Kimmy, you've know, seen the Soderbergh film. It's always a reason to celebrate. Um, but I am a little bit obsessed with this movie. I don't know if this is a movie that generally wider population are going to be all that excited about. If even Soderbergh fans are going to be like, this is great. It blew me away and I really want to talk about it some more and I want to talk about it with Andrew. So we will talk about Kimmy next week and we will also talk about our favorite Steven Soderbergh films. So there'll be some wider Soderbergh conversation in there too. That should be a lot of fun. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Capture and Cell. Until next time, thanks again for listening.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam.